I keep waiting for that uh, that award from Society of Illustrators for like technological, you know, whatever advancement for the for the art form. Hey, this is the big story. I'm Alex Morrissey. Thanks for joining me. Today's guest is someone I've had on my radar for quite a while. Aside from his great illustration work, he's a deep thinker about the business of art and design. I wouldn't be surprised if the byproduct of his work has such more people and fans in the comic book industry than anyone else in the last decade. If someone's drawing comics or coloring them in Photoshop, I bet his brushes are in their hands. I'm talking about Kyle T. Webster. So, it's a new year, and it's time for change. And I have been buzzing away uh, on my writing this year. I mean, all of one week, but um, it's been a crazy time. And my book came back from copy edits last week, so I am in full-on revision mode. And with writing, it's usually an uphill climb for me. and like takes three times the amount of energy for me to get the one basic thing that most people can figure out. And um, my chief uh, focus has been improving my writing voice on the page. Hopefully, with the grammar all settled, I can uh, transform the work of the book to match a writing sample I produced last week for a writing seminar. And I'm super encouraged by that and daunted at the same time. I also have uh, another big change that I wanted to share with you, and it's about the show. If you've followed along for a while, you'll know that this is a one-person operation now. And with my writing schedule, what it is, I just don't have time to do the video version of the show anymore. Uh, the edits and the uploading takes hours, and I just don't have that in my calendar. So if you found your way here wondering where the video version is, I apologize, but they are no longer. And unless somebody's going to start paying me to do this silly thing, they will remain unpublished. All right. Well, let's get to it. This is me and Kyle Webster. You may win the all-time award for the nicest background. Well, uh, thank you. you should, yeah. So this room, um, the only thing I did to it was paint the the blue and the white. If, if yeah. you can, but when you imagine this room, if you can, if you can, mm -hmm. as everything being wood paneling, sure. just no, I, raw I wood. See the, I see the beadboard. So. That's what it was, and it looked very seven, like nineteen seventies, oh, yeah. like. Yeah. Um, so just just by painting it and then throwing all my my books up there, yeah. it just completely transformed it. So. Well, the, uh, the, the term now that I, the, uh, I'm using that I heard was the wall of credibility. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's I love that term, you know, it's just like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wait, wait, I got to go this way. So you got, I've got the giant Nemo, the, yep. uh, and, yep. uh, the Chris Ware and yeah, it's, I'm making sure everyone knows, oh, look, he's got good stuff. <laughs> oh, legit. He's legit. <laughs> Isn't this weird evolution in the last three years where we all now have to be like part-time television producers? Yes. Oh my God. You should, man. I can't. I can't turn my laptop because yeah. it's in a. It's in this weird stand. But um, directly to my left, mm -hmm. I have the the light that's illuminating this room. Right. Is this like 
two and a half foot by two and a half foot like uh, professional photographers light yeah with the with this is the best it's such a great format and it's surprising yeah. to me that it's had this renaissance i guess you know yeah it's it's like this weird combination of old school radio mm-hmm. and then there's this other aspect of it which is like conversational television shows like two people would sit in chairs and talk to each other that's yeah, pretty great actually <laughs> yeah yeah it evolved or devolved into the modern talk show format the late night show um mm. where they'll have a guest for literally five minutes if you count in the commercial break and all they have time to do is plug their latest project and then get off right um with the rare exceptions uh but like what was his name i i, I know this not to cabot yeah, Dick Cabot, it was Dick Cabot because he would – what I liked about Dick Cabot was just, you know, he really would let the person talk. <laughs> um, although I guess everyone who was good at that did that. Um, but uh, And he introduced me to so many um, people watching reruns of, or replays of his mm-hmm. interviews that I, people I'd never heard of. Uh, I'm a huge um, – fan of sleight of hand and close-up card magic and plus ricky J. oh my god uh yeah r.i.p uh ricky J. um i i got a hold of his hbo the recording of his live show that he did ricky J and his 52 assistants easily 15 years ago somebody had posted it on a magic chat group couldn't get it anymore and hbo wasn't playing it anymore uh but um but anyway the reason i bring it up was Dick Cabot had on several times on his show an entire 30 minute show with just this guy Slidini who is this Italian Oh, I know the yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's like just you should just watch just watch the Dick Cabot Slidini clip. He had he had the most unique and original presentation of close-up magic with coins and scarves um and cigarettes. But uh, it's just it's just like amazing to watch, and the best thing about it is just the time that's given to him uninterrupted, and how different that is from now, where you watch and you can always tell everyone's racing the clock to get to the next commercial break or get to the next guest. Right. So yeah, podcasts have really kind of gone back towards just talking and not feeling pressure to like wrap it up. You've been this unique presence in the in the at least from my perspective in the comic book community, like for the, for these, I guess, like last 10 years or so. And, you know, and I, I've used your products and like, like, Thank you. <laughs> I, like I bought your products before they were part of the Adobe world. Like I was like, well, I have a, a you know, whack them and I'm going to draw things. So I might as well have better tools. So well, I, double thank you then. Cause if it weren't for people buying them, I wouldn't be at Adobe. You know, listen, drawing is the first love of my life, you know, sitting and drawing. Yeah, me too. And I remember when I first like got an extra, some extra sort of dough, I'm like, I'm going to buy that Cintiq. It increased my design work right away. It was just like, oh, I'm, I'm actually like physically manipulating layout here. Like this is a completely different world. So you go from, from making a line and then undoing it, making a line, undoing it, making a line, undoing it, doing that three to four times for every single line to actually just drawing the line and moving on. Right. Right. And you know, and then when I sort of, after fighting with the existing brushes, you know, in the, you know, in the Adobe quiver, you know, you sort of showed up on the, on the, on the digital horizon. And I was like, 
oh, what's all this about, you know? And and I don't know how I first came onto your stuff. And then I, I think I signed up for your newsletter. So I was getting all your sort of, your, your hey, here's what's going on. Here's this. And I was like, all right, this makes sense. Like, so I bought, I bought stuff. And then the next thing you know, it's like, a, you know, cascade effect. <laughs> I got everything, you know? And then it's like, hey, they're free in Adobe years later. I'm like, God, oh, no. <laughs> like, I felt like I lost, like the, the value was gone, but whatever it wasn't. Um, I think that to- if you had bought everything I ever made, I think it was still under $100. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, for like. So- yeah, fifteen hundred brushes. Right, right. And like, and I would. And the thing is, I would never have like, it, even if it was like ten brushes. Like the time it would have taken me to figure out to make the ten brushes, would it like? Is that worth my time? Like, it's not. <laughs> it just isn't. Like, I can't. Yeah. It, you may have. I wonder if you heard about it through Paulo Rivera because he was instrumental in getting it really out there to the comics community. He was so oh, helpful yeah. and great one. Yeah. No. Wow. Yeah. If it weren't work for so Paolo, um, uh, Tommy Lee Edwards, mm-hmm. um, Rico Renzi, uh, Matt, uh, <laughs> ah, Wait. I always want to say his, his, his like persona, color and Matt, Matt, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why am I blanking about Matt? Oh, it's on. not a very complicated last name. It's I like, know. Oh it's my, like, it's embarrassing. It's not Hollingsworth because that's complicated. I'm, I know. I want to say that too. I know. Well, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt, we love you, Matt. It'll yep. come to us, our old brains. Um, and yes, a few other folks were like just actually, you know. Oh, Greg Smallwood. Um, they would they would say that they would call out the brushes by name. Paolo even went so far as to mention them in a issue of um, the Valiant, like at the in the back pages where he was talking about his process and like. Right. It just made a huge. It just made a huge difference because you know when people like that mention something, other people are like, "Oh, cool! I'll check it out." So, so I just can't thank them enough. So I think it's. it's I'm sure through some somewhere through there and through social media, you probably heard about them. Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> thank you google um, and it was just one of those things where it made complete sense and i you know it's like oh the difference between that first brush you buy at the art store that mm-hmm. you afford and you spend like four dollars and 68 cents on a brush and you say brushing is it's hard it's horrible it's because you have a bad tool you know right right then you like you eventually can afford a windsor Newton okay, this actually is a repeatable thing. I can make a line and make another one. And it was the same kind of feel. Like You're like, oh, these actually have vibe and I can do stuff with them. So I was- Thank you. That's the best compliment I could ever get. Well, it would be better if it came from Greg Smallwood than me, believe me. (laughs) No, man. No, I just, I mean, when people who actually draw and like know what drawing feels like with different tools- say to me that oh it's great because then i could that i could be more comfortable drawing digitally that's all i want to hear because that's really what my goal was from day one yeah for myself that's why i was making them it's a crazy thing because you know i speak with a lot of people who do this for their you know daily bread and it's like the tools are at a level now that they challenge the creator as to what choice that they make when it comes to producing the artwork, like mm. the, the digital tools are so fast that people are going like, maybe I 
don't need to do the secondary art sales market because I can get more pages done and I'll make more money on the front end like and the back end, you know. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting that's not a, that's not an effect I'm sure you even intended. You know, that's not a fir- that's not a second order effect that you were like, okay, well here's what it is. No, I mean I being an illustrator, well first uh first it came from just um like you running up and running up against walls and getting frustrated with what it felt like to draw in this app that I love Mm -hmm. to this day. I mean, Photoshop's just such a beast, but, but the drawing experience and a Wacom made and still makes amazing hardware, but in the middle, the thing that was missing was the brush options. And, um, and uh, yeah, it all just, it all just made sense for me to just make my own, so they would feel the way I wanted them to feel. And so to do that, I just spent a really unusually high number of hours messing around with the with the brush settings panel and and um, creating tools on my own time to where I started to really understand how to get the results I wanted. Um, and for the longest time, I was just doing it for myself. And thank goodness for Corey Godby. I don't know if you know Corey Godby. Yeah. Um, he's a fantasy artist. Well, he's also done comics. He's done. Uh, he did um, the interiors for some Dark Crystal stuff and some other bits and pieces. He's he's great. But um, he was selling his sketchbooks through Gumroad, just digital versions of them. He had physical versions at at, at uh, cons when I'd see him, you know. Um, and then like he mentioned to me, "Hey, you why don't you try putting your brushes up there?" Um, so. That was it. Like, yeah. just took off like a rocket. And it's so interesting because I, I remember that sort of period of probably around somewhere between 2005 and 2010 when the the idea of digital products for sale. Mm. And everyone's like, oh, you can make a thing and you can sell a thing and use the internet to sell it. And everyone's like, that's cool. And I am kept thinking, like, if you can create a digital thing, you don't have to make anything. You make it once and it's just practically zero overhead right right and it's it's an unbelievable like platform and you know model if you can make a thing that is worth people showing up to buy you know yeah yeah so much is luck and timing man i mean like for me it just happened to i happened to be able to do it at a time right when twitter was growing exponentially this was 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. around then. So people had signed on to Twitter three years prior, but they hadn't really messed with it too much. But then it became a community thing. So mm-hmm. comics artists and other illustrators were constantly talking on Twitter all day. So there was that. Um, the second thing was there were actual creative um, – like there were these hubs where you would go to buy stuff. So yeah. you had creative market – and Gumroad had just launched, and people knew to go to these places to find digital goods. And so, like, because of Twitter, because of Gumroad, and because of um, my ability to use social media to just get the word out and then connect with all these artists. And, and just for me, too, I'd been in the business by that point, um, drawing for almost a decade, and I just made all these contacts with people mm-hmm. all, all around. It was very easy for me to reach out to somebody and be like, "Hey, try these out, and if you like them, tell somebody, or tweet about it, or whatever." Well, um, it, you know, and you can see this. You can see the sort of the the evolution on both ends of this is that like you, you know, you had a need, you solved your problem, you know, the, the way that you, mm. and then 
someone says, hey, you know, you can put this out, you know, out here. Why don't you put it up there? So you put it there. On this side, someone's like, hey, I really like like what someone just posted. And they go, oh, yeah, I did this digitally. How did you do it digitally? Because it sucks every time I try. And they go, oh, no, I use this brush. Yeah. From there. And they're, like, they're, they're heading this direction. You're heading this direction. And that middle spot is that is Gumroad for you. Yeah. And it, it's really, I mean, that confluence is super rare. Like you can't make that happen. No. I, I man, I'm I'm so I'm I'm always I'm always quick to say that um I am really proud of what I made and I I did put a lot of time and energy into building a brand around it and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But the time in which I made it I I, I made it public was so perfect because of what you just said. And it just could not have been a better environment for digital brushes, you know, for a digital brushes business to actually succeed. Like even three years prior, it probably would not have worked. And then if I had tried to do it today because of all the competition that now exists, I wouldn't know where to begin. It'd be so hard to cut through the noise. So like Adobe's figured like, hey, we don't need to task a team of people who might not even be illustrators, you know, to like sit there and come up with a bank of brushes. Mm -hmm. What we can do is we can take the existing, you know, pinnacle of that product out there in the market and bring it in, which is like, that's lucky for you. Oh yeah. And also that was a, I mean, uh, I always get, I'm trying to think about the timing and I've, I've done, I've talked about this before, but I always, I know I, after interviews, I'm like, wait, was it that long or was it shorter or was it longer? But that whole process was about three to four years. I want to say three years, if I'm going to get it just right. Um, of me first suggesting to them that we do some kind of, um, collaboration. And then that grew into me suggesting we do an acquisition and like the amount of years it took for me to actually work my way through the company to get to somebody who could make that kind of decision and even and even see the value in it, that was crazy amount of work um, and just relationship building and doing small projects with them and doing like live guest spots on Adobe Live, then creating finally after t- at the first two years. I created a, a, a set of brushes for just seven brushes that were going to actually be installed on download for what was then Adobe Photoshop Sketch, an iPad drawing app that they had. Sure. Which was a precursor to what is now Adobe Fresco, which is Fresco is far and away. It like it's got uh, literally four or five hundred more features than Sketch. But Sketch was the first sort of entry into drawing with Photoshop brushes on the iPad. Um, and so then from that point I met the right people in the company who I could then talk to about a much bigger idea. And that whole thing, once once it was even like something we were talking about for real, because of me having to get a couple of lawyers involved and get a business manager and a what's this guy's what was his deal? I can't remember what he was called. It was a guy who who specialized in um, valuations for small businesses, right? Like mine, yeah, sure. I had to pay him, so I did like paid him to do his work. Business manager got paid a lot, but without him, it never would have happened. So he right. deserved it. The lawyers, um, they get whatever, their they get their rig. They get a lot of money, and I get. I was very frustrated about that because uh-huh. of the amount of like six hours of work amounted to like at four hundred dollars an hour, or whatever. You know, it's just crazy right. how much lawyers make. But 
good for them. Mm-hmm. They passed the bar. Um, so anyway, that whole thing took about a year. Um, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating. It's more like nine to 10 months, but, mm-hmm. but uh, that was crazy. So none of this was, was really something that I thought could happen. It's the kind of thing it's such, I mean, imagine the ego on somebody. If I, if I just started selling digital brushes, I was like, Oh, now I'm going to make this, um, this multinational corporation buy me out. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. That's insane. Um, it did happen, but it happened as part of an aqua hire. So it was an acquisition of the business, but I got hired. It, it was like not even something I thought would even be on the, on the table. And so when they presented that offer, it was better than what I was even trying to do. Um, so it all just got, it, yeah, it all worked out really, really well. And of course I'm extremely fortunate and, um, it's amazing now that I get to sit here and, and help shape other drawing and painting experiences, um, within the company and, uh, and continue to make brushes, which of course I really like doing. Um, yeah. Well, it's, you know, there's, it's an interesting thing. You, it's really hard to plot out a creative career. Oh God, it's impossible. You know, and I think I think along with the starvation element, um, you know, that's the, one of the greatest fears any uh, parent would have with a child is because there isn't like I go and I go here and I make the art and I go home. Some in-house illustrators still existed in advertising agencies when I got into advertising. I was still I worked in web design and advertising before I. Um, became a graphic designer, and then finally started my own illustration business. But when I was coming into the ad world, there were still a few in-house illustrators working at the agency where I worked. They were gone. I was only there for three years, and they were gone at the end of my third year. And what what, what years would those be? Just so This was um, 1999 through 2001. Oh, that totally tracks. Um, yeah. A ton of my illustration work early days was was just for ad agencies, and it was doing comps and mm-hmm. really rough storyboards. Very rarely did I do an actual piece of finished work because they would always pitch it, and then um, in the yes. end, the client would go another way. It's like how many how many times you actually do a finished piece of illustration for advertising? I know it happens for some people more regularly than others, but um, the few times it happened to me was a huge payday, and I was always like, "Oh yay, there's going to be more of this coming." And then two years later, I might get another one if I'm lucky. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, I, I think the percentage of actual illustrated like print advertising is super low. Oh yeah, uh, it, it's just not, and it's unfortunate because I mean, it, I think it is a va- is as valid of an answer as anything else. It's oh, just, of course, right? You just have to have the right solution for it. It's just not. It's not a. It's not a, like. It's not like. Well, we'll just do a drawing instead of a picture. Like that's not the answer. Like because everyone's going to say, "Well, let's just do a picture," because then we don't have to. Like we can control everything. You know? No, clients are so they're so wary of it. They're so scared because they don't know exactly what they're going to get. With but they have this like sort of security blanket with photography or whatever, where they're like, "I know what the image is. I know what what you showed me, and this is going to be the result." And then with illustration, it's like, "What's it going to look like?" And well, and they that also, trust isn't there. The client could be on set. Yes. And, oh, and they can say, "Hey, can you move the soft box?" Yes. There you go. I remember the word. <laughs> you remembered it. Um, yeah. No, but the thing—that's the thing—is that they have they have a bit more of agency in that situation as as opposed to what you said, which is like they don't know. Right. Exactly. But then, of course, the the 
a lot of the campaigns we remember are the illustrated campaigns and the illustration community knows of the big ones because they are so few and far between, but like they really do stand out. I remember all the way back in the late eighties, early nineties, Mark Fredrickson did these Levi's um, billboards and they were in magazines and they were posters and they were in store displays of just like these cool looking kids mm-hmm. with their Levi's 501s or whatever it was. And yeah, those stuck out like they were so amazing and so cool you know it was like back when acrylics and airbrush like amazing yeah. work well i worked on so i worked on uh, levi's campaign around that time too oh so, wow so when they launched type one in 2001 2002 yeah. so i did all that stuff and it's funny like i did all my ad sort of comp work and storyboard work. i did it all digitally Mm-hmm. Except for a couple of things, I would do my draw my initial drawings, you know, with pen or pencil, scan those, and then I would just do everything else, you know, in a you know on a Intuos. One of the other reasons I wanted to make the brushes was so people could do that kind of work and make it look traditional. And well, that, that was, you know, what was missing? It would drove me nuts. Was there was no magic marker? Oh then- man! I well, I so my, the marker set I released is okay, but the thing is, you can't do mixing the same way. And the right. only place you can mix markers that look like markers is, believe it or not, Adobe Fresco, because they the engineers created a separate mixing algorithm. Really, just for this. These two, it's just two brushes. That's the only problem. <laughs> but if you open Fresco, there's this category that says markers. Mm-hmm. And there's a brush marker and a chisel marker. And if you try blending color with them, it works completely differently from all of the other. Yes, it's just for those. Nobody knows this. Nobody uses them. But then when I show people who are like fans of Copics and whatever, then they're like, oh, crap, I didn't know that was in there. And nobody knows. But just so you know, and so other people, if anyone's listening to this, you can get like marker blending to happen all right, so if you can get Bruce Tim, Ronnie Del Carmen, Murakami, <laughs> any one of those guys to do some pieces in fresco using the because those, I should get Ronnie. I, I, I yeah, I'll reach out to him. They are so good with yeah. markers, like I know. at a ridiculous level. Where'd you grow up? I grew up overseas. I grew up all over the world. Is awesome. I so spoiled. Um, my parents. Before we were born, went to teach in Pakistan, in Islamabad, Pakistan, for two years, um, and uh, they were they were working in New York State. Moved to Pakistan just because they saw an ad in a in a you know uh, some kind of pub- educational publication about teaching overseas and go to go to exciting places. And so they went to Islamabad of all places. Um, they had such great time. So when my I have a twin brother. When we were born. We lived in the States just until we were five, and uh, my mom ran a nursery school during that time, Um, and then once we were five, they're like, okay, cool. They're old enough. Let's get out of here again. Went back to Pakistan. We lived in Karachi for two years for first and second grade, Um, then moved to Singapore for four years, Uh, then foolishly moved to New Jersey for two years. My my, my parents had this, this... notion that oh maybe they're losing sort of their connection to you know the country that their citizenship reflects or whatever right um miserable time there we didn't fit in with anybody we just had these six years of schooling in this completely international environment we knew nothing about or didn't care about american football or baseball or that crap so the boys 
there just bullied us relentlessly and I hated it. But uh, fortunately, after those two years, we, we kicked it back overseas. We lived in Cyprus for a year and, in in, you know, the little island there. Yeah. Um, in the Mediterranean, that was great. And then finished high school in Taiwan. So bounced all over the place, made friends from all over the world and still friends with many of them. And, um, the best part about all of that was just being exposed to so many different ways to do pretty much anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Before, before 18 years old, you know? And so, um, I think that has influenced how I, think about everything with my art, you know, it's trying different styles, trying different approaches, making different tools and um, trying different small business ideas. You know, mm-hmm. being an illustrator these days is not just sitting around and drawing. You've got to be trying all kinds of stuff. Think about it with all the tools available, how amazing of period it is to be a creator of whatever the thing you're doing. In the nineties, there was nothing like you basically were working on sample pages and pounding on doors to yes. get work. Uh, uh, it was so much. I mean, get your stuff in workbook, get your stuff in communication arts, in graphics, maybe, you know, hope that that somehow leads to some calls, hope that people are looking at those books and then physically go office to office, make the trip to New York and go into the offices for editorial and go to the agencies and try and meet with the creative directors and like leave them like an actual physical book of samples. And I mean, it is, it was no wonder there were only so many people whose names you really knew, like the number, the amount of people right now making a, a quote unquote living as, as illustrators is insane. It's so high, but like in the nineties, you knew, pretty much who was out there and who was surviving because they were in the books. They were in like people's mentioned their names and, um, and they were just a hard time. And you, you saw their work on the products. You're like, Oh yes. Greg Manchese, he does these covers. That's because he's the guy. Yeah. And in comics, of course, I mean, Oh my gosh, like literally writing letters. Yeah. Um, and sending sample pages and, um, crazy to to do it that way but that's how that's how it was and there was no instagram no no so you're living around the world and it seems to me like having this in your hand is and that is a great thing you don't need a whole lot you got paper i got Mm -hmm. this i have this imagination i can kind of make stuff that makes sense to me have pencil will travel Um, yeah was art like the fostered kind of thing in the home or was it something you did? And they just said like, well, cool. The, so my, my mom brought home some coloring, some star Wars coloring books, 1979, 1980. Um, and uh, I would, you know, I was like whatever, four or five years old. I would, I would color the books and then draw from the books, like once I was done coloring them, I would open them up and just copy all the drawings onto paper. And yep. so I loved drawing. I just remember distinctly drawing Star Wars, drawing the Hulk, drawing Superman, Batman. Those, those are the comics, comic stuff and Star Wars stuff just all the time, day in, day out. Um, and uh, then for some reason, just really love drawing horses, which is, I still to this day cannot draw horses well, but I just wanted to draw horses well because I just thought horses look great. And I also had a little book. She got me a, um, 
so there was these series of books, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and anybody out there listening who's a comics person probably remembers if they're roughly our age, Walter T. Foster, these series of instructional books you could get, the Walter T. Foster books, the Lee J. Ames books. You get them in the library. Some that you could buy them very cheaply. Um, I had several of those books. She even, when I was, I remember this is so funny. Um, I remember her for Christmas when I was in second grade, got me a book of, of how to draw the nude figure, okay. <laughs> which yeah. a lot of, yeah. a lot of parents would be like, well, that's an interesting choice. Um, but it was one of the Walter T. Foster books. And I, I just copied all these naked women out of that book. Mm-hmm. And at that age, it's not like I had any interest in them, you know, other part from just these are, these look interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm drawn to them. I'm not sure exactly why, but I like to draw them. And I, I, and that like, I started me off on really already at that age, thinking more about drawing accurate uh, anatomy and stuff like that. And then of course um, I'm wearing it right now. This, you know, Tintin. Yeah. Um, okay. I was really lucky because the Tintin albums, uh, you know, a large number of them, not all of them, but a large number of them were available in our school library in Pakistan. And when I was wow. in Karachi. And so I, I could just had those at home all the time. and was drawing from them. Um, so early interest in comics and then um, everything – third grade is when my dad gave us Mad Magazine, and that really blew it open because then I was looking at Mort Drucker sure, and Jack Davis, and yeah. I was just like going nuts, going, wow. I, I Look at how Mort Drucker draws, and to this day, I'm still just blown away by him, but – um. Uh, so then I was trying to like figure out some of that stuff, and so I had all these different influences. Um. But drawing was a daily thing, and I think like anybody you probably talked to and like yourself, I'm sure, it was just always the thing that you you loved to do and probably got positive, you know, responses, you know, parents, teachers, wow, good drawing. I like the way you draw that's, other or peers. That's number you know? one thing. Like I think a kid loves to do anything, but the second someone says, Hey, that's nice. Right. Right. It just it just kicks it in, and then you, as you get better, and build confidence, you, of course you enjoy it more, like anything else. And then you also then get to that point, like most kids, where around, you know, between the ages of maybe like eleven and thirteen, you hit that frustration point where what you're imagining doesn't look like what you're drawing, and then you really really want it to. And a lot of people give up at that point. But I think you've been if you've been drawing that much by that age, that's where you push through it. Most people actually do. Most, you know, all kids draw and all kids love drawing. And then they stop around that age because they actually start to become critical of their work and they get frustrated and they stop. So um, those of us who've been doing it a lot more at that age usually push through and, and try and figure out why it doesn't look the way they want. And so they start getting the right information. I can cite a few influential people in that sort of teenage years. Did you have anybody who kind of did that for you? Like, you know, would like yeah. sort of buoyed you? Well, you know, I was really lucky. I always had good art teachers. Um, and uh, so seventh and eighth grade, that was in, this was when I was in New Jersey and, and a miserable kid having a horrible time, getting bullied all the time. But um, this, uh, my art teacher was from Taiwan and his name was Mr. Chin. And Mr. Chin uh, really, like, that was my special time is when I, when I had art class, I knew I was going to be happy because Mr. Chin would literally focus 90% of his effort during the class period on me Um, because I took art seriously. I wanted to learn how to draw better. I wanted to understand everything he had to offer. And the other kids viewed art class as time to goof off and be stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially the boys, which is just how it is. You know, um, we all know this from art. Art is a hard thing to teach in middle school. Um, So I got that really special, almost one-on-one time, even though it was a classroom environment 
with him seventh and eighth grade. Um, he, you know, had he recommended uh, books for me to look at from the library and stuff. I didn't know good art instruction books uh, from, you know, I knew what I liked, but. Yeah. Um, and then I think probably also around that time, because I had fewer friends and wasn't as happy, I did re- do more drawing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't as socially active as I had been up yeah. to that point. So remember. that helped. Yeah. Um, and also that was when I discovered um, how to draw comics the Marvel way, which was a Christmas present in seventh grade. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and don't ask me how my mom even knew what that book was or had, I think it was literally pure luck. She was like, Oh, that looks like something Kyle would like. And that was a Christmas present. And of course, you know, you look at that book today, you still look at it and go, great book, man. This is yeah. it. it. It's, it really answered, you know, 80 to 90% of all the questions you needed to know the answer to. It's phenomenal. Just yeah. phenomenal. I mean, that whole concept of gesture, like never, I'd never seen that covered anywhere let's say or like drawing if you want to draw foreshortening like just drawing a big shape in front working your way back using these simple shapes and simple primitives to construct a figure this was so mind-blowing to me um and uh yeah it's an amazing resource so that that definitely had something to do with it and then yeah let me just cut in for one second i just realized when you were talking about it something that that book did that i didn't realize until this moment it also told me that this is a job. Oh yeah. Wow. This is like, here, here is Stan's language talking about, you know, John Buscema and, and whoever else, you know, he had, he he was speaking about in the book, but you're like, he's talking about the people in this, in John Romita who are making the comic books. And as, and I think I made the connection at that point, Oh, that, that this is a thing that people can do. I mean, I knew that there were names in the comic books, but that didn't really kind of connect until that moment I saw that book. Wow. Um, I don't think I made that connection. I, I Maybe I did and maybe I didn't. It's so long ago. Um, but that's really interesting. Uh, I think – I think in the back of my mind, I always just assumed that was what I was going to do for a living someday. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And I never did. I mean, I, but I, I thought, but that was, it doesn't matter. I think what matters is this idea in the back of my mind that I was going to draw somehow for a living and draw stuff. I like drawing Yeah, was always, it was never like a, and it, I think, you know, thankfully my parents too, never even thought about talking me out of anything like that i would talk about stuff like that all the time and my mom also had brought uh home for for um another gift at some point our gift or just it just was in the house i don't know why giant collection of norman rockwell saturday evening post covers oh wow so that's obviously a huge influence yeah you can drop that down in front of most anybody and they're mm-hmm. just going to get lost in the work. And I don't think you have to be an artist. I think no. everybody just gets right into that work. It's so accessible. Yeah, and there's always there's always a whole story that you can glean from it that is makes you smile or makes you think or mm-hmm. it's just clever. But it's like so much more about, you know, that idea that an illustration can be beautiful, but it just gets pushed – it kicked up another level when – there's uh, some element of um, there's some narrative or whatever. It's just it's great to have a, a to discover something in there. Like oh, I see what must have happened five seconds before the drawing. Right. Like right. that's so smart. I love it. You know. And, I, and I'm, I'm repeating myself. Apologies. 
Joe Orlando was one of my teachers in college. Oh, wow. Was his weekly assignment was find a picture and draw what happened five seconds before and five seconds after. Oh, wow. What a great assignment. I wish I'd thought of that. I just, I just retired from teaching this year. (laughs) So it was, it was a phenomenal assignment for multiple reasons, but it, 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 you know, because the photograph that's chosen by the art director from the photographer's, you know, keen eye is the one that tells the most story. Mm -hmm. And why is it telling the story? And so you can figure out what the story is around that. And that's what Rockwell does yeah. in his work. And all illustrators, you know, with great technique, you know, and aptitude. Well, listen, if, if you rise from the ashes for a weekend thing, you can do that. Well, if you don't mind, I'll borrow it, it for a um, for an Adobe Live uh, class because I one of the things I do is a free master class every Friday in illustration. Um and I'm always looking for great topics. And that one, I think, is is just a great thing to just demonstrate. It's not... I think Joe would love that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So how did you struggle through this sort of... Well, I mean, listen, we all struggled through middle school. Um, how did you translate that to something where, where you had this internal fire saying, I, I know I'm going to draw f- for my livelihood. How did you kind of make that... A, a reality for you? Well, again, very fortunate to have good art teachers in high school. Um, and uh, the exception was ninth grade. There really was no art class for that year where I was in Cyprus. It was a tiny school. Half the students we had came rushing into the school because of the Iraq uh, conflict, Kuwait, Iraq. Okay. Yeah. We had students from Syria, from Iraq, from um, Kuwait and, and surrounding Jordan flocking to this school. It was nearby. It was a safe place to be. Um, and the teachers were scrambling to try and accommodate these growing class sizes. We didn't have at the time an art teacher proper. There was sort of a photography thing going on and some odds and ends. But during that year, I did very little drawing by comparison. Um, but I did actually, because there were things I liked at the time I was reading the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles original graphic novel stuff. And, um, so I, I actually created a poster for my room of, of Leo. Uh, so like an 18 by 24 full color oh, wow. thing. So there was a few, I started just doing, making my own art for things I wanted to have in my room, but could, didn't have access to mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. And uh, so I did do some drawing that year, I remember, but not as much. Um, but then I got to, to Taiwan in 10th grade through 12th grade, I had great art teachers. Um, yeah. So shout out to Loretta Wenger and John Wood. Um, they really uh oh and Kathy Wu, sorry, three good teachers. Um and they pushed me to grow, at, which is you know, in high school it's rare to get a teacher who yeah. does that for you. And you know, most of the time you get a pat on the back and they say, You're good at drawing, you should do more of that. <laughs> um instead they would be like, well, you're good at doing this, you should try doing more of this, because this is probably somewhere you need to be getting better. Mm-hmm. Um and so that that happened for like three straight years, and then the last year of high school is where, or sorry, no, junior year of high school is the first time I made money make, doing illustration. Oh, and right. that was such a great motivator, of course, for anybody. Um, and I, what I did was a couple of album covers for school bands. Bands like there was a band like Canthropy. It was a, heart, a heavy metal band. These kids yes. did their album cover and their and their whole thing. Um, got paid for that, and then I it started. Doing other little odd jobs like uh, T-shirt design for this club or that club, stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. So I made a little money. Um, and then I had been teaching myself calligraphy just as a hobby because I think a lot of people like to draw, also like to try and do lettering. Yeah. Um, and so I did all the lettering for the graduation uh, uh, certificates for the senior year class, the class ahead of me for that year, and I got paid well for that. Um, so I had a few quote unquote freelance jobs that year, and I did the more more of the same in senior year. And um, so once I had these this feeling like, oh, I can make money doing this. And it wasn't like a ton of money, but it was money. Um, I was even more sort of motivated to, to figure out a way to do that. I just didn't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was in college, again, just got really lucky, had an amazing professor, Mike Ananian, who kind of broke down everything I was doing and, and just kind of threw it out the window and said, here's how you draw properly and kind of rebuilt me from scratch made me so much better at everything. Um, but he encouraged me to enroll in this this program through Yale University called the Yale Norfolk Program, where they get about 20 art students from around the world to come for a six-week intensive. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, like anything else, there's no harm in trying. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I did not feel confident with my portfolio. It was all just naked people, and that's all I had done. But I, I went ahead and applied and I got in. So I did that six weeks and that six weeks was kind of like almost a whole year of really intense college level instruction in art. And it was amazing. And during, when I was there, I met people who were working as artists, okay. you know, the, the faculty. Um, and so just got another peek into the window of like, like, wow, these people do what they love day in and day out. And that's how they make money. Um, so that made a huge difference. And then when I graduated, I went into web design because I, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't even still know what illustration was or working as it. Like, what do comic book artists really do, et cetera, et cetera. I'd already had an experience, like, at least kind of trying to get something out there, though. I had made um, two submissions for the the newspaper comics, you know, like the syndicates. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when that was a thing. And I did that in my junior year of college. I made two, you know, and the, the, back then the requirements were you had to do a month's worth of dailies and two Sundays Okay. Um, for a strip to be considered. So that's a lot of work. Um, was it King's, King Features and... I sent it to everybody. Universal, King yeah. Features, King's Features, um, whatever. You know, there are, now I'm forgetting all the other ones, but... I'll, I'll, here, here's, here's a little weird tidbit. So in... 1994 for a brief period and all too brief uh my roommate and i our apartment was in hell's kitchen but we had this really nice studio space and for a brief moment in time we produced the phantom weekly oh i love the phantom yeah so lee falk who was handling the phantom at the time who was probably he was probably in his well he was probably in his seventies. We thought he was in his nineties, but he was, you know, in his years. But he lived in like this penthouse apartment on the Upper West Side, like because wow. he was a strip guy. And back when strips made a lot of money, he probably bought this apartment. So he had this, you know, this, and he took a shine to my my uh, roommate, and he's like, "All right, you can do the, the strip, kid." Wow. And we did the we did the Phantom. All three of us would you know, kind of jam and work on this thing, but like we all kind of got it in our head for some stupid reason that it should look like Mike Mignola's artwork. And oh my god, <laughs> ninety four, you know Mignola. So this isn't like more bubbly Mignola. Yes. Yeah, so we, we, you know, this is like Iron Wolf, you know, Fafford and the Gray Mouser kind of influenced Mignola. So we, uh, we produce 
started producing like morphing the strip into this look for you know a few weeks and then phone calls started coming in saying <laughs> no you know this is not right <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it, was a, it was a funny moment but still wow that's so cool the phantom i my my dad growing up loved the phantom um from the serials and everything and he uh i got i, I want to say it was falk but i don't know how long he lived someone one of the old phantom artists who is in his i want to say early 90s okay well, maybe it was him could have been <laughs> Was at the Heroes Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, like a decade ago. It could very well have been him, yeah. Yeah, and he did a phantom head drawing, and I gave it to my dad for Christmas that year. Cool. Um, but yeah, and actually, I, you know what I kind of want to do? I don't want to watch that that movie from the... Was oh, it the Billy Zane? The Billy Zane one. I haven't seen it since it came out in theaters. Like, what was that, like 1994? 92? Oh, we we're, so, we're like, yes, this is going to be great. I know, it was not great, but I still want to watch it again. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, so... so um, Yeah, I tried submissions. I got rejected, but the cool thing was just knowing that someone had seen them and sent me the rejection letters. I don't know, there's something about that that makes you go, oh, it really can happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of cooking back there. And, um, I started, I was doing illustration in-house at the web design place for the advertising agency that owned the web design shop. Okay. Right. Cause this is early to like, was yeah, it like, 99 through 2001 around that time. All the agencies had their, their web shops before everything crashed and they were like, no more of you guys. That's exactly what it was. Yep. And like the web shop, us, we had all the cool furniture from Herman Miller and they like had, you know, foosball table. They were blowing all this money on a thing. Money. That just, exactly. You money. You're going to be the next thing. That was the thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, but I, but because I could draw, like the art directors from the ad side were coming down to me and be like, hey man, can you bust out these three boards for whatever? And yeah, okay, whatever. I wasn't getting paid extra or anything. They were just right. taking were advantage built, of me. For it. <laughs> right. Um, but then when I got laid off from, and as did 90% of us, um, when the bubble burst, uh, they kept coming to me for that stuff. So I was doing that for like three, four months and I was making way more money as a freelancer doing little ad gigs for, for um, whatever. And I was like, dang, this is fun. I like it way better than web design. And then I got hired as an in-house designer slash illustrator at a design shop. And um, while I was there, that's when I got to really figure out that I could pretty much use illustration as a design solution to so many problems. And so if it was like a packaging job, I would just be like, solve it with illustration. If it was a logo, solve it with illustration. And, just I grew so fast in those few years drawing and making all these different kinds of drawings and different styles with different quote unquote media because I was starting then to deal with brushes, would make my own brushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave me the confidence to go out and start my own illustration business. And so it all just organically kind of happened. But the thread all the way through was loving to draw, yeah. drawing all the time and trying new stuff, you know, like like everybody. The one thing that I think holds a lot of people back is just the fact of putting whatever they do out there. Like mm. if you just need to make things, the more you make stuff, you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Just keep making things because you will refine whatever you need to refine to get to the next thing. Yeah. It's like, it's got to be so much more quantity over quality in the early years. You got to just keep churning. And then at the end of every year, look at your portfolio and get rid of all the stuff that you're embarrassed by. And then do the same thing the next year and the next year or the next six months and just keep doing that. 
until eventually you have a book. If you if you have been working consistently, by the time I did go out on my own, even now, if I look back at that, I'm terribly embarrassed. But right. it was good enough to get me a whole bunch of illustration work back then. And, and then every year I just did that. I just kept shuffling away the stuff that was nasty. Yeah, you could hand that book to somebody else and they could go get work. But the thing is, is that that's, you know, but that was you then at that level. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have the ability to open up the preferences panel of Photoshop and go, okay, here, I'm going to make a mark. All right, I don't mm-hmm. want to do this. I want to do, I wanted to do something else. And you'll try the, you know, the AB, okay, for 50%, I'll move it to 25%. Nope, that's not the direction I want to be. 75%. Okay, that's closer. Now I got to fine tune it. And it makes me think of like, you know, when you get a new guitar pedal, you're like, <laughs> not exactly sure what I need. You know, this this is where is the sound that I want from this thing and you have to kind of consistently do that variation testing to get to that tone that you're yeah. And I think that like you would probably make a great guitar tech. I think, you know, that's a great analogy. The only other thing about it though, is the hardest thing about it for me was, you know, everybody draws differently. Sure. Everyone has a light touch, a heavy touch. For me, the hardest thing was once I got a tool to feel exactly how I wanted for me, Mm -hmm. then trying to figure out, um, can I adjust this so that it kind of hits a sweet spot for enough people that they're happy with it and they don't think it's too tight, too loose, too whatever. That I realized quickly was going to be the hardest thing because everyone can fine tune something for themselves. Then how do you kind of like, and so I think that's where it was really helpful for me to have feedback from people like Paolo mm-hmm. and, and Tommy Lee Edwards. These are, I mentioned them a lot because I would actually be emailing with them a lot and trying to get feedback on the way stuff felt. Um, because, I just kind of felt like they could represent a large group of people who kind of draw in a similar way or whatever. Um, well, that's also the man on the ground approach. So yeah. Tommy Lee is like saying, Hey, the problem is, is when I do this, like I'm not getting the res- like it's not blending into the thing and I'm not being able to pull the colors up so I can get that sort of like wash effect that I really want this to have. And then mm-hmm. you go, oh, okay, well that's, I can make that change, you know, and that's a thing. Like that's a yeah. bit need. Yeah. In fact, I went so far and I've done this a few times to design custom tools for specific artists. Um, and I, for Jillian Tamaki, I made some, some inking tools. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a, I don't know if you know her work, but she's absolutely amazing comics, graphic novel illustration. She's in, in Canada. Um, she did a book called skim and then, uh, what's that book summer. Oh, for crying out loud. Uh, this one summer okay, with her cousin, Mariko Tamaki, she's done a bunch of covers for, for books and for magazines and, um, just had another graphic novel come out picture books, but anyway, like a very specific inking tool I made one time for her, just going back and forth. And then John Martz, um, did some stuff with him. Tommy, I made a few custom stuff things. Christoph Neiman, the German illustrator made some tools for him. There, there are some people who I just was like, they would write to me and say something. I was like, you know, the easier thing for me to do is just to make exactly what you want. Sure. Right. And and just give it to you and let you yeah. have it. Well, and, I, I don't yeah. know. Matt, Matt gave his brush. I mean, 
his, you know, gave his brush to Brennan Wagner when mm-hmm. he was, you know, showing sort of teaching Brennan how he colors. So Brennan's like, I use that brush. Like that's the brush I use. Cause oh, it, cool. like, that's the tool that he learned, you know, to, to, ink, you know, to color with. So. Yeah. Most people that, use just a handful of tools, but they love them and they're, their tools. And so for me to make thousands of brushes, the idea is not that people are going to use them all. The idea is someone will find amongst those thousands of brushes two or three that they absolutely love. Yeah. Well, we'll try them all. That's... One of the yeah, one of the coolest things actually was when I'd make a brush with in my in my mind, I'd think this is what this is br- this excuse me, this is what this brush is for. And then see that some professional artist out there who I really admire is using it for something completely different. And then I'm like, oh, cool. It can, it's good for that, too. I'd never meant for it to be for that, but they use it for that. And that's always really fun when that happens. It happens a lot, actually. And um, then I use it that way. So I, I get – I find and discover new ways to use my own tools because other people are using them. I'm like, oh, cool. You can do that with it? I'll do that, you know. That's a neat thing that happens, this weird back and forth or cyclical or whatever it is. I don't know what that is, um, but that's cool. Right? A feedback loop. You're getting it. Yes. Do you know that there's a, so there's a designer named Bruce Mao. He's a, he's a Canadian. I think that, yeah, the name Mao sounds, yeah. Yeah. He's a phenomenal guy, just a, a, a brilliant thinker. And he has this Mao's manifesto. I mean, if you Google Mao's, Mao's manifesto, you'll find, you'll find it. And it's, it's full of just chock full of great things to think about as a, as a creator. And one of his ones is like, customize all your tools. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Like I remember reading that and I was looking, you know, and this is probably 20 years ago, if I look around my little workspace, <laughs> like everything is customized. Like you just, that's the, you know, that's what keyboard shortcuts are for. Like, yeah, you get, make them work the way that you want to work. Um, yeah, and that's a level I think everyone gets to when they've gotten comfortable with the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing, too, that's interesting about digital art is how this is – and I see this as a more of a negative thing about digital art is um, how for the younger artists or for students, um, it may cause them to skip steps in their development mm. where they go from – that point of like liking drawing, wanting to draw better, mm-hmm. to suddenly being overwhelmed by all these tools and tricks and and digital, you know, super effects and all this other cool stuff that they they'll miss a middle step where they're just really hammering on fundamentals of composition and line and mm-hmm. and uh, value and you know proportion, all these things that come from literally just you and a pencil. Yeah. And then, you know, struggling with that for a few years until you get that baked in, because when you have that baked in, that digital world becomes so much more powerful for you as an artist, because you know how to take from it what you need to amplify what you're good at Mm -hmm. versus, you know, somebody just dumping in your lap um, 64 million colors. Sure. And 2000 brushes and you go, well, this kind of looks cool. And you spend a lot of time just doing that, but not getting better at drawing and telling a story and composing an interesting image. So I, I, yeah. that to me is an interesting thing for for teachers now to have to navigate is how do you get students to care about that middle part? To drop shadow yeah. or not to drop shadow. <laughs> right, like, right. That's the, this, this is the story of the desktop publishing craze of the early 2000s. This was the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's true. You, you put the tool that was in the the sort of the 
arena of the professional into the hand of the of the masses and the mm-hmm. masses go cool we can do this and that was so they they that's what they do is they just they do it yeah and, but they don't have the fundamentals they don't have the skill sets they don't have all these things in place to to know whether they should do it or not do it and they don't even know what kerning is and right. you're giving them 2000 fonts right yeah um and that, so and it's and I'm, and I'm not saying this to be disparaging to people who are utilizing tools and going, I can make this thing. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, but as you said, there's this middle ground of knowledge and it, it, it takes a while to, yeah, that's, that's the important stuff. Right. And it's going with what you said, like, it's like quantity over quality. Like just, if you're learning a thing, learn a lot of it and just keep going and make all the mistakes and then look at it in retrospect and go, okay, well, this yeah. seems like I solved this problem. Well, I don't understand how to draw hands clearly. Let me figure <laughs> that out next. The you know? hands thing. I love that one because James Jean once um, was writing about, or maybe talking about his, his, you know, development mm-hmm. when he was at SVA he filled an entire sketchbook or maybe two with like 30 or 40 hands per page oh. um, from every conceivable angle. By the end of that process, he said, that was it. I was yeah. done. I could tell me a hand, any position I could draw. It. It's sure. It's like proof positive that it's just the repetition of the thing and the study of it, like with intensity. Yep that yields the results. And um, I love that because James Jean draws beautiful hands and he's gone beyond drawing anatomically correct hands to drawing stylized anatomically mild, mostly correct hands, but like stylizing it for beauty, not for right. the sake of, yeah, of, um, of accuracy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I, I think we, we, we struggle between fidelity and um, art and there's this factor of like, oh, well, it has to be right. It has to be correct. And that's great. And that is true to a degree. And then you kind of move beyond that. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's you know, and e- you could easily dismiss this part of our conversation to say, well, it's James Jean and like, I can't draw that well and nobody else can dr- draw that well. But I disagree in the sense that the reason he is that way is because he's filled two sketchbooks up because he makes that effort to say, I'm going to get better and better at the thing that I want to do. And that's just volume repetition. And the more you do the one thing over and over again, the less you have to think about that thing. And the more you can access all of that gained knowledge. And it's the repetition with purpose. It's, it's beyond just repeating. Like if I were to, if I were to play scales all day um, on the violin and continue to make the same mistake every time I'm practicing, I'm not really getting ahead. But if I'm noting the mistake and then intentionally working to correct it and then moving on to the next mistake and the next mistake, then I'm going to get somewhere. So it, there is there has to be that yeah, acknowledgement of where the yeah the shortfalls are, the, the shortcomings. Figure that thing out and then you speed back up. And then you speed back up to the point where you start to make mistakes again. Then you right. slow down. And, you, and that's just how you learn anything if you – approach it in that fashion um yeah um and i was just thinking about you mentioned mignola mignola but like the thing about him paring down to the essence of whatever it is he's drawing over the last 20 years you can watch that process from him having this much detail and this much this much work going into every individual drawing 
to paring a figure down to just like six or seven lines with a few really well-placed spot blacks, um, there's just no way you could go from point A to point Z in a year. It's because he mm-hmm. worked through that. And we, I love that, that one of the, my favorite things about him is that we, ha- we as artists ourselves and observers of him can see his evolution anytime we want. We can pick up a Hellboy from 1996. Right. And then we can pick up, uh, you know, Hell, Hellboy in Hell yeah. and, and go, oh, look at that. It's yeah. so cool it happen right you can go back in the 80s and pick up his uh michael moorcock quorum series and it's like phenomenal and beautiful and wonderful but it's not what you were looking at today Mm-mm. and but there are teeny tiny hints that it's coming yeah, the, the 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 like no feet i'm no, just kidding <laughs> yeah, yeah. but like it's it's what's really interesting is about Mike is that we look at this and say, oh my gosh, he just covers everything up with black. It's, you know, either A, it's beautiful or B, man, he doesn't have to draw a lot. But the thing is, he actually draws so much stuff that he then covers over with black. Yeah. Because he hasn't made that final choice. He's like, what do I need to show to tell this story the way I want it to be told? And he's just a great designer. I mean... It's just design choices. I, this is my my prized possession here. This uh, this pencil drawing. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and like what I love about it is it's hard to see. I'm sure on camera, but you can see him working through everything. There's there there are all these lines, um, mm. alignment stuff. Like yeah. he's got a line dropping down from uh, the the brow down to the the chin it's just a straight line where he's just working out proportion mm-hmm. and there's all these little lines that are half erased everywhere and i love the drawing but like my favorite thing about it is just that it's just evidence of him thinking through the drawing and someone at that level who's that great and so wonderful to look at is still doing all the same things we all do and i, li- I like that because it makes me feel closer to him yeah um, like any other person you look up to and admire, it's like they're they're doing the same things you're doing. They're just getting there faster or getting there with better results because, you know, more time in. Yeah, sure. And he, I, I've always, I've, I've felt with Mike's work for a long time is that he's approaching drawing almost like a sculptor. You know, he is removing elements to create these shapes that we're looking at that catch the most amount of light to tell this, you know, the, the most, whatever he wants. Um, yeah, that's perfect. I, yeah. I agree with you. That's and very much how, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's totally cool. So you, you did, you have, you've done comics, you've delved in the world of it. Um, I guess you, you, you mentioned that you, and you showed me some artwork from uh, light children. Yeah. And so that was two, how many years ago was that? Nine? That was ages ago, like 2008 or something. Okay, yeah. So here it 12, is. <laughs> 12 plus years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, anyway. Um, so was that your first like comic book project? Like, was this something like you were like chasing after to do? Or I met this guy, Andy. Um, he told me th- the thing is like, I just, I just wish Light Children could exist in the world. I wish that it was a thing that existed and could exist and that I had the time to make it. Um, because everyone says this, but it's, it's the coolest story I've ever heard. I just don't have time to draw it and neither does he. Um, so he's, he's written this 12 book series start to finish. It's absolutely incredible, Mm -hmm. but 
you know, we're not plugged in. We don't, and we don't have anybody funding it. And so, right. I mean, I'm, I, I have a job. I work at Adobe and I do illustration. He has a job running like two different businesses. We made a go of it with the first book with no marketing budget, but we, we somehow made this whole book <laughs> took us forever. Um, and I would just draw it at night after I came home from my full-time job. And I did that for like a year straight. It was crazy. It's about 80 pages full color. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a ton of work. I just did all, like, and he, you know, the writing and the back and forth and making it happen. But um, as much as I want it to exist, I know that it's just not possible unless he and I just quit our jobs and work on it for like four straight years with no money. So right. that's just not realistic. We both have families. Um, so I did, yeah, I dabbled in comics through this experience. I, I learned a lot about, you know, pacing and all the all the stuff and um i look at it now and i of course would do it completely differently today um every single panel almost uh because i know a lot more and i i do it better but you know what this is the thing is i'm glad i i'm glad i made a go of it i'm glad i know what's involved in trying to make a comic it's so much work so much drawing it's so Mm -hmm. much drawing everything it's not just you know you got to draw environments and you get to draw the cool stuff all the time yeah. Oh yeah, a lot of stuff you don't want to draw. Um and um Tommy Lee Edwards was kind enough to let me do a variant cover for Turf when he was working on that with Jonathan oh, cool. uh, Ross. Um and I I did that little holiday <laughs> holiday greeting card thing for DC once, but I, I haven't done that much comic stuff, yeah. you know. Uh because I'm not really I guess I'm not looking for it and I'm also not plugged in. I'm plugged into the artists and the writers and that's cool. And I love being part of the community through the brushes, which is, I think probably the greatest gift of the brushes is how much it's helped me to connect with so many artists I admire in -hmm. so many different parts of the industry. So like because of the brushes, I was able to go to Disney and do a a workshop there. And because of the brushes, I was able to go to Pixar and do a workshop and go to Wacom and do a workshop and just go to all these cool places and like, meet all these people I love and become friends with them. It's been amazing. 12 years, 13 years ago, wasn't the time to be self-publishing a book that you could get out there on the internet. Like it just wasn't, that wasn't the time. It was, it was the wrong time. It was a ton of work for both of us, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm, I'm proud of it just because we made it. We finished it. There were 11 other books we did not complete because it was just not realistic. Mm -hmm. Heidi McDonald wrote a positive review of it. Yeah. Like what else do I need? That right. was it. When she, when that happened, I said, okay, we did our job. We sold out um, all the copies we brought with us to the, we brought them to heroes convention that year. And we brought 350 copies. We sold out 350 copies of this book. No one had ever heard of. I thought that was pretty great. That's, that's a great, that's a great thing. So, and that's what happened. And, and yeah. you know, some people ordered it online. I don't remember what else, but at the end of the day, we both were exhausted. There was no way for us to continue it and still keep our day jobs. And it just, it was over, but it was cool that it happened. And occasionally I still talk to him. We go, man, maybe one of these days sure. we're going to be independently wealthy and we can just do it, you yeah. know? Sure. And he's got this other story that's even bigger, which is even more amazing, which I really want to draw. And I did a drawing for it. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And yeah, this is the thing. You get one life um, in a single lifetime. You think you're going to be able to do so much, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm already pushing 50 and I'm like, whoops, I guess I realize now that there's only so many things that you can really I'll do. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Well, and the other thing you, you said, which I really relate to is connects you to this community, a community that you have 
a love for. You love comic book people. Oh, yeah. I, you know, stumble like a dummy into many things in my life, like doing this podcast. And now I get to talk to people who inspire the hell out of me every week and go, oh, this is amazing. Like I'm reconnected to what I consider one of the more interesting and creative communities in the world. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're, and that's, that's really more, more special than anything else. I mean, just, it's the people, it's always come back to that people who do the thing that you love and you, and then when you bond over that, it's uh, and there are these really specific communities where it's so tight and you so quickly connect with somebody and just get on the same page. And it's, I mean, comics are huge like that. The first time I went to heroes con, I was so, like I just felt I was intimidated to to talk to people who whose work I knew and who were hanging out and like I got over that so fast because I realized and this is the same for everyone in this business you realize how nice and how sweet everybody is and that everybody has the same um uh self doubt and like the people who are even at the top of the game they're still like trying to get better at drawing and trying to get better at whatever they're doing and um and they also remember how, what it was like to be wherever you are in that journey. Mm -hmm. And they totally can just time travel back to that and give you the kind of advice you need. Um, the sweetest thing happened at convention last, that heroes last year. Um, my, I took, my son is, is just turned 12 draws every day. He's just like me, but he draws tons of comics, his own comics, which I'm so impressed with. Cause I never did that. Right. Um, but he was carrying his sketchbook around, and we we talked to Chris uh, Chris uh, Schweitzer and Dustin Harbin there. Both of them like went out of their way to just stop whatever they were doing, look at his sketches, talk to him about drawing, give him advice, give him a free print, mm -hmm. and like just just encourage him. And then um, Brian Stelfries was sitting by himself, you know, head down, you know, kind of not wanting to be whatever. He didn't even have a name plate or a name tag or no, no booth information, whatever. He's at a table by himself, just drawing commissions. And I walked up to him and I was like, Hey, you know, Mr. Stelfreeze, I don't want to interrupt, but just want to say hello. And I love what you do. And thank you for everything you do for the community. Yada, yada, yada. And this is my son. Um, and, uh, you know, he loves to draw and just wanted him to meet you. And he goes, Hey, what you got there? You got a, you got a sketchbook in your hands. Mm -hmm. He stopped doing a commission, took my son's sketchbook and flipped through it. And I'm not exaggerating. Must have looked at it for a good like 10 minutes. Wow. Talking about every page, talking about what he liked, talking about what he thought about this, talking about ways to do this better. Mm -hmm. I, I just was standing there the whole time going, okay, we're going to have to wrap it up. I don't want to bother him. But but he he never gave any sign or indication that it was like, all right, get this kid out of my face. He just sat there and talked to him until there was nothing else to say. And I mean, it just was one of those things where I thought, yeah, this is the, this is the representative of the community that to me best represents what this community is, is, is people seeing someone loving what they, what they currently do at their age, but seeing it as like an 11 year old at the time mm -hmm. and remembering what they felt like, what would it be like if I, as an 11 year old met someone like Brian Stelfreeze, what would I want from that interaction and oh. then giving it to them? Totally. As opposed to just being like, look, kid, I got to work. Yeah, yeah, right. Beautiful moment. Um, and just, I think that's just, that's what you want from that well, kind of thing. He, I think he is an inveterate teacher. I think Brian yes. has always been that person. The Gaijin crew all refer to Brian as like their, their 
their sensei, their teacher. Oh, that's cool. It doesn't take that much effort to be that kind of person. And then, it, but at the same time, it's easy to forget to be that kind of person when you are busy or where you have achieved a certain level of success and people are constantly asking you for advice or asking you for things. But to to be that way still um, when you've come that far is is what I hope I do. If people ask me mm-hmm. questions about anything having to do with illustration business-wise or otherwise, you know, and I, I just think that's just so admirable because, you know, that's pretty much what I've – those are the kinds of people I've met in this, in this business. Yeah. Most everybody is like that. And then the yeah. few people who aren't, you know, I always think, how did you get this far <laughs> by not being nice? Yeah. And it, as I've gained my own level of wisdom or whatever level that is in life is this is their time in the, in the world. Maybe this is the time that they're not happy. And I'm catching them on that moment when sure. they're not like something, they just got a bad voicemail or whatever. I can't judge them on that reaction. It's like getting mad at someone on the highway for cutting you off. It's like, they didn't cut you off. They just, that's where they went. And you happen to be right there. Like nothing was intentional. So that's true. That's true. Not, it wasn't personal. Right. That's, if it's just know. one moment too, you don't know the whole story. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I try, I, 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 I become i think a lot better at you know benefit of the doubt um and that actually leads me to i guess a couple of things that you're working on right now um this is me really look at me being the interviewer huh yeah Um, thank you (laughs) um so you've got two things out there the lines of zen Mm -hmm. and you've got the trace book and these are both very sort of self-care oriented items and why so the the first one is i mean admittedly just way more uh, pure luck, looking for an opportunity kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Trace. What happened was uh, my former manager at Adobe, now good friend, Koi Vin, had created a Baron Fig notebook. Um, and uh, I really admired the company, Baron Fig, the publisher. They do notebooks and pens and um, just beautiful stuff. And I literally just said to him, how did that collaboration come about? And I'd like to work with them because I have an idea. And he gave me a contact information. I reached out and it all just fell into place. And we came up with this trace book. And um, that was the, the meditative idea came from me starting to get into trying to figure out how to do more meditative practices in my life because mm-hmm. I had such bad health issues. I And I'm still fighting right now with a couple of things that are slowly, slowly getting better, but about a decade of like solid, solid battling with some really annoying, horrible stuff. But um, meditation being part of that to to just calm everything down, get my nervous mm-hmm. system and give my body time to like heal as I try and get better. Right. And I, I tried traditional meditation and, and just was not, just could not really get it to click for me. Right. Uh, everyone's different. Um, but then I talked to a lot of other people who were in the same kind of situation with me where they're either they're, they're um, entrepreneurs of some kind or they're illustrators running their own business. And the stress level is high. And everyone knows this. If you're trying to do a creative business and you're trying to make it, you you are always kind of on and you're, you've got a little engine running all the time thinking about self-promotion, thinking about that next gig. Is it coming? Is it not coming? Deadlines, blah, blah, blah. Um, and realizing that they too did not have a successful sort of practice in their life for calming themselves down or just taking a moment. Um, Cause it's not easy to do it. I tried guided meditations and those were better. 
Yeah. And so what happened was the trade with the trace book, I was going around to bookstores. This is right, you know, pre pandemic and other organizations and doing these meditative drawing workshops to support the idea of the book. And I realized that people liked the book, but the meditative drawing part, the workshop I was doing was more exciting for them in the long run. Cause then I'd get emails about them being like, yeah, I like the book, but remember that thing you showed me, I'm doing that every morning now. Mm, okay. And I was like, Oh, wait a second. Okay. So what I did then was I took this idea of meditative drawing exercises that take about five minutes and I really put my head down and, and created about 20 of them. Um, and then I, I worked with this development partner of mine in, in Ireland, Dennis Hennessy, who I've worked with on, on various app ideas for over a decade now. Um, we've never met in person, but I consider him a good friend. It's just how internet relationships are. I sent to him this idea for the app and how I envisioned it working. And we took about two years to build it. And now Lines of Zen is there and it's an app. And the only thing we have to do now is unfortunately, like everything else in the world, get it out there. And that's mm -hmm. extremely difficult. Yeah. The things it has going for it are a first of its kind, which I always think is good. There are no other meditative drawing apps. Um, the other thing I have going for it, I think, is that like me, I can't do traditional meditation and get much out of it. But I can draw and get the benefits of meditation because as if you, I'm sure you've experienced this where you're drawing, you just have to kind of – everything gets tuned out because you're focused on this one simple thing. You're making a mark. You're making another mark. You're responding to what's there. And it just kind of sucks your attention. Mm -hmm. And it's a great thing. Um, I just never noticed it before that I was that was my meditation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted other people to have access to it but not have to worry about being good at drawing. So each of the exercises is designed – to have literally anybody pick up a pencil or a pen and do it sure. five minutes. If they want, they're done. If they want to extend an exercise to 10 or 15 minutes, no problem. They're all extendable, extensible, whatever the word is. Um, but yeah, right now we're just, uh, so thanks for asking about it. Now I've gotten a little more, you know, I could talk about it more, but. Well, it's, I mean, you, you also solve, which is the, the age old thing when anybody has the spotlight of pressure of drawing something put on them. The answer is, I can't even draw a straight line. Yep. Well, guess what? You don't have to draw a straight line. Nope. Everyone has performance anxiety because we're judging ourselves on the things like you said, horses, yeah. you know, like there's a thing about like drawing horses, dogs, and children are like the third rails of <laughs> because, because people like adults, like you can draw an unattractive adult and people will accept that they yeah. won't get an upset. But if you draw an ugly dog, Oh, they're going to be pits. People <laughs> or a child, <laughs> or a child. Right. So like we have this sort of ideal of perfection and, and cuteness, which like dogs and children are definitely in that category. Yeah. That is the sort of the pinnacle of it, but it goes down to anything with people and they go, Oh, I can't draw that. But you're not asking people to draw something. You're just asking them to be lost in a moment and yep. make, make a shape and it doesn't matter. It's okay. Yeah. And the, what I love about it is for most of the exercises, they will turn out a little differently every time. So yeah. it's not, there are a few exceptions there, but for the most part, these exercises are designed to have a different result every time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other thing I like about it is, and this is, again, I think when I did made the brushes, I made them for me first. Mm -hmm. So I was making this app for me first, like what would I want? And because of the guided part, that's what I wanted it to be is it's, I could easily just 
put out some diagrams for how to do a meditative drawing, but sure, I talk you through it and it's, there's quiet music and there's pretty stuff and it's, yeah, it's very quiet and calm and headspace. That was the guided meditation app that I used for about a year yeah. or two. Um, yeah. Headspace is great. I love the idea of someone talking you through the process mm-hmm. of meditating, except I wanted there to be an activity mm-hmm. where at the end of that meditation, you could look at something and be like, Oh, I like that. It's pretty. Yeah. But it required no drawing ability. Um, in fact, some of them, you know, when I do the workshops, you know, I say people you color, color in the result and make it a greeting card or, or put a little, put it in a little six by eight frame on your desk and, Remind yourself that you made that, and it's a great feeling. Moment in the video that you produced, mm-hmm. you know, like draw a frame around it. Now you yeah. made a piece of artwork, and I'm like, yeah. How did you come up with the so like? Because I, I mean, me, the designer brain is going, okay. Well, how did you come up with the problem and solve the problem? <laughs> what was your model in that? Um, these are literally. I sit with my iPad with with Fresco, and I just sit there, and I will draw what I think might be an interesting exercise. What's something I could do that has some system, some framework right? where it makes sense what the steps are, what the sort of uh, structure is and what the end result might look like. So here are the steps. And I mean, this comes from literally just hours and hours of me sitting and thinking, could this be an exercise? Nope. Right. Could this one? And I record my screen when I, I love this about iPad. You can just yeah. swipe down and record the screen with, with voiceover. So I have hours and hours of recordings that I eventually have to dump so I don't fill up my iPad. Yeah. Uh, but I'll edit them down to the ones that have some promise. And then the great thing about that is sometimes I get lucky and mm-hmm. the recording I've made, and I've gotten over over the period of the two years of trying to design this app, I've gotten much more efficient so that now I'm smart enough to where if I think I might have an idea, I record it at the size it should be recorded for the actual app so I don't have to do it twice or redo nice. and i'll get lucky where i'll have at least a video recording ready to go and then i have to redo the audio with the oh, with yeah, the better yeah, equipment yeah. that's cool what would you say are the major differences between and, and uh, the link to this this will be in the doobly-doo so people can you know get you know take a look at it but for your example piece where you have your five dot pairs what was your initial idea because we learn through our mistakes so I've, i want to know like where you where you went off target that's a good question. Um, a lot of the exercises come from me thinking first about what are things everybody can do. People okay. can make dots on a page, you know, and people can connect the dots. This is something you've been doing since you're a kid. Sure. Um, so many of the exercises are drawing dots in a certain configuration or non-configuration, you know, whatever, and, and connecting them in some way. There's a logical way in which you connect them, this to this, this to that, and there are rules in place, but these rules are very easy to follow. It's not complex. Um, So I think that comes from me thinking, what can people draw if they have no skill? If I told them to draw a rectangle, could they do it? Sure. And if I told them to draw lines inside that rectangle from from corner to corner, could they do that? And like that's where the idea from uh, for the the uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of my own exercises now. Divide. What's it called? Um, well, it doesn't matter. There's one that that's based on that idea plus origami, which is a which is a hobby of mine, mm. and the bird base, which has a, if you open up the bird base and see the configuration of of the the creases, the folds when you have the flat square back on on uh, open back up after you yeah. fold the base. So I was thinking about like ways to do that. So subdividing space, um, 
just all the many ways a person could make marks in a semi-organized way on a piece of paper mm-hmm. without having to be good at quote unquote drawing. Yeah. Um, and so when you start to combine all those, you know, um, like making some kind of a looping shape, drawing a square, drawing a rectangle, drawing lines, connecting dots. Mm-hmm. There are many, many, many ways to connect all those into some kind of short exercise. And then what I'm trying to do now is try with every new exercise I design for the end result to be kind of pretty mm, so that yeah. you might want to you know, color it in and put a little frame around it or whatever. It can be a nice abstract design. And this is not a requirement, but it's something that I noticed with some of the exercises where at the end it did look pretty. And it, that's nice. You said, bonus. I mean, you, you say that in the video and as I, you sort of, I think you say it even before you're kind of finished with it. And, and, and I was like, well, why, why is he saying that? But by the time you got done with it and the lines, I'm like, yeah, that is nice. It is pleasant and pleasing to see these lines looping over each other and coming around. I'm like, okay, yeah, he's right. Yeah. Um, that's the goal. Not, not necessary, but it's a bonus when that happens. Yeah, for sure. Another thought is were you or are you an inveterate scribbler? Of course. Yeah. I mean, my notebooks from high school are endless doodles and patterns and Wolverines and Batmans. Okay. All right. The doodling for me was a lot of, it was a lot of patterns. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think a lot of that comes from, so I have my, my brain. I think this is why I was able to make the brushes was that combination of pure, free, open, loosey goosey, creative mark making and wanting to do that. But also the part of my brain that gets excited and interested in totally understanding the brush settings panel and all the little settings and like tweaking this here and that. And it's very mechanical and very sort of squared off. And that combo comes together, comes together in interesting ways. And yeah, Yeah. no, I think, I think that's cool. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned the health things and yeah, I mean, this is the thing that happens to us. You know, we, you know, we, we are invulnerable until we're not invulnerable. And yeah, Unfortunately, um, a lot of our invulnerability is taken away by our lack of attention to it. So we, you know, we, we could probably take care of, keep ourselves far more invulnerable for a lot longer if we did better job at maintenance. So I get it. And I, and I've, I too have had significant, you know, brushes with the Grim Reaper and, they're they're not pleasant and it's not something you you want to have happen so things like self-care you know and mental maintenance these are these are these are so powerful yeah my my health has improved dramatically if you only were to look at how i do activities for managing stress reducing stress calming myself down that has probably had as much as an, uh, much of an impact, if not more, than surgeries I've had and other kinds of things and PT and all this other stuff I've done. Um, and if I had only known to, 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 to make it a part of my daily regimen, you know, 20 years ago, sure, probably a lot of what I'm dealing with now and will be trying to help cure and, or, uh, or sorry, uh, heal for the next 10 years wouldn't even be a problem, wouldn't be an yeah. issue. I did it to myself without realizing I was so much stress, but another smaller component or 
actually not so small. One of the health problems I had goes back to middle school when I was getting bullied. I got physically bullied so badly in one incident that it left me with a permanent health problem. Mm. Um, And that is why I I do hate those two years more than the average, you know? Um, So that's also very frustrating, but the, 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 the stress part, obviously we all need to work on and, we just live in a very stressful time right now. For sure. I, you, you know, I, I, I agree. I, I don't know if we live in, I mean, I think everybody lives in the most stressful time of, of history. You know, like yeah. we, nobody lives in the future or the past. We live in now. And it's really, it's tough. And I've found myself that one thing that I'm really trying to bring into my conversational relationships with people is asking like, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Like, Mm. are you healthy? You know, because these are the questions I'm asking my friends when I'm on the phone with them, because we're, it's too easy to just go, Hey, cool. All good. Bye later. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it, you know, we need to kind of take those moments and just be open and fair to each other to say, Hey, you know, I'm not feeling as good as I, you know, I'm tired. I don't know why I'm tired, you know, because we need, we need that. We need that connection and the ability because sometimes maybe it's harder to say to the people you see every day versus the people who you you don't see every day um, oh for sure because the people you do see every day it's more convenient to for everything to be great because you're relying on them for that kind of interaction yeah. <laughs> um but the well the other interesting thing you mentioned that everybody lives in the most stressful time whatever time that is i think the difference today is we're aware of so many bad things going on outside of our immediate sphere of, you know, whatever. Um, And so if I were to travel back 40 years, so 40 years ago, if I were to be quote unquote stressed out or concerned, whatever the stressors would be, would be whatever is immediately impacting my life right here and now in my own environment. I don't think I would be as aware of the many horrible things going on a hundred miles away, a thousand miles away, Right. 5,000 miles away and then being reminded of it daily. That's the difference. You could, you could hear about horrible things in the news, Yeah, but it'd be once, once a day at 6 PM, if you cared to tune in or if you wanted to read the newspaper, um, otherwise you could pretty much shut it out today. It's difficult with social media and everything else in 24 hour news cycle to not be bombarded with, you know, it's, stressful news. It's, it's, it's omnipresent. I, I can right. remember how invasive and dis quieting when the brawls first oh, appeared on, on television CNN and yeah mm-hmm. and you'd be watching a show and all of a sudden this thing would crawl up to the bottom and start talking about whatever was coming up next or any news elements mm-hmm. and i just remember this sense of invasion <laughs> and now i think about it it's just part of the the world that we live in it you is- may not be consciously thinking about it but subconsciously we we haven't evolved fast enough for that to change so subconsciously mm-hmm. there's still a little alert going off in your repti- reptilian part of your brain going hey pay attention to that hey be worried about that sure. it's it, that's and pretty it's, scary it's red it's always red yeah because yeah. those are the those are the poisons you know that's the thing you avoid in you know in the wild right. so like our minds like you know and i've said this forever is that we don't we aren't evolving as quickly as our technology is so not even close so when we say like oh everyone's crazy and everyone acts you know nuts or whatever it's not our fault it, it it's it's the tools that we have around us that are just 
we're not capable of handling this stuff. Like if you brought cell phones and dropped them into the hands of the people in the 1600s, they would act just like we do because they're humans. <laughs> they're the same people then as we are now. Yeah. It's just that the world wasn't pressed in on their brain at all times. So, yeah, you know, and so being able to take five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever your practices are to, be mindful or meditate or whatever the thing is that you can do. It really makes a massive difference in the long run. Yeah. And that's another, uh, I'm not sorry. Sorry to bring it back to my app. This sounds very no, self-serving. No, no. That's another reason I wanted it to be something people do on paper. It's yeah. not designed to be something you do on the screen. The screen is giving you instructions, mm -hmm. but I want people to have a pen in their hand and a piece of paper. And there's something about that to me that is so healthy to just it's not me are. doing this. It, it's, it's who we are. I mean, we are anatomical beings that connect physically to the world around us. And that act of writing, drawing, and or whatever it is, we are tactile and we need this kind of stuff. It's not to say that the the digital thing is bad. It's just a different thing, but it is not a human thing. It is yeah. cool. Um I, I've, I've even, and I've said it recently and I've, you know, like I've, if you add up all the things I've, I've drawn you know, in the, in the last 20 years, 95 plus percent of it is been in, in a digital environment because Same here. the tool is usable, accessible, portable, whatever the thing it needs to be editable. Yeah. It's a big one, but gun to head <laughs> and I and and money isn't on the table and someone says you're going to draw a comic book in the next year I've thought about it a lot recently and I'm not going to do it just in case my wife is listening I'm not going to be dropping everything to making a comic book um, <laughs> I'm I would do it by hand I would I would do it on paper now I might use tool I might use digital tools in the terms of maybe laying it out but I probably would end up printing that out as blue line, drawing on it a bit, and then inking that with a hand, with a brush and by hand. That would, would be so fun. It. I would color it in Photoshop, but if I have to get paid to do something, I'm doing it in a digital environment because I can get the job done. I can make the edits that I need to when the client, and they will, say, hey, yeah. can you... <laughs> You need it. It's reverse. It's a reversible thing. It's an editable thing. Working digitally is magic. But yeah, you know the one reason I'm not the one reason. One of the reasons I'm sad I'm not teaching is because that was my access to uh, charcoal and watercolor and all. That's what I was teaching at the mm -hmm. university here. Was I teaching life drawing and portraiture, just charcoal on newsprint? Oh man, oh, and a watercolor class. Yeah, the best part is that like you know you at the end of the session everyone just kind of lays their pieces down on the floor and you can walk around and look and see that's what the best working on and you go wow okay wow that's amazing you know and, and then you yeah yeah i mean it's, i went to the society of illustrators one like about a month ago yeah. with from adobe we went and the coolest thing was that i but i sat down and before the model came out i immediately met this couple from france who were in their like 70s who had been drawing at the society of illustrators you know for a few years and whatever um and then i met this dude across the way who was working on an ipad and we were talking about working digitally and then i met this other guy it was like just immediately start talking to people and then look at their drawings and it was all this just and everyone's having drinks it was so whatever but i was you know i'm still very very covid shy so 
And I was yeah. wearing a mask and everything, but nobody there was, nobody cared. Everyone's like, some people are masked some people were not masked. Sure. And it was just great to be in person and be with people doing that. And I, it, that digital experience to me is lame. It just doesn't cut it. It's, it's not the same. I enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed all the conversations I have online, but if you and I were sitting in the same room together, you know, hundred times better. It's a different, it's a human experience. So yeah, yeah, and I, I get it. Um, so, okay. Let's, let's not dilly dally too far here. So, <laughs> um, Kyle T Webster, we can find you everywhere. Kyle T Webster, right? Yep. Everywhere. Kyle T Webster with the one exception being Instagram, because I stupidly deleted my Instagram account a year after opening it in 2010. Oh. And they will not give me my original username back. It's some stupid policy they have. So it's Kyle.t.webster at Instagram. But Damn. everywhere else is Kyle T. Webster. They'll all be in the doobly-doo. You cool? This is good? Yeah, That's great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a super good to talk to you. Not to lump you in with the, uh, the Glass Onion uh, crew, but <laughs> it's always good to get to talk to disruptors. Ah, I'm a disruptor. Well, hopefully in the best possible way. No, absolutely. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody was, nobody, people weren't doing what they were doing at the level they're doing it until you came along. So there you That's go. That's really nice. Thank you.